I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Just before we get started this week, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Sean Roberts just before the new year. Sean was the promoter for many years of Fabric, and specifically the Friday nights at Fabric. He was really instrumental in building into what was just extremely important institution in the development of bass music and dubstep in particular also drum and bass in london and in the uk i didn't know sean that well personally i did meet him a few times but just the reaction of so many people in the scene has been just illustrative i think of what kind of a guy he was and the contribution that he made so condolences to his family and all his close friends And I hope that we can, as a scene, do him justice going forward. Okay, so last week we had a break and the week before that was DVS1 and the reaction to the DVS1 podcast has been a little bit overwhelming. It was, yeah, really, really popular and lots of people got a lot out of it. There was a lot of info in that episode, which I think people just weren't aware of in terms of the way the back end of royalty collection and the distribution of revenue works for producers and DJs. So yeah, if you're a new listener as a result of checking that episode, because there were tons of new listeners as a result of it, then hello, go back and check out some of the old episodes. There's a ton of really, really good ones. We're on episode 53 right now so this is episode one of the new year as it were we're not doing seasons or anything like that this is just episode 53 so thanks to zach for that amazing conversation on the last show and i think this week is going to live up to that in a slightly different kind of a way although this week's guest is also a dj and a producer it's manpower aka jeff kirkwood native of newcastle 
in the northeast of England. And if you're listening from outside the UK and are not familiar with the um, regional politics of England and the United Kingdom, the northeast is a very singular place. There is a pretty distinctive accent, which you will notice in the conversation today. And Jeff is just an interesting guy who's done lots of different stuff, has an interesting story and has done some really, really interesting work over the past couple of years during the pandemic and coming out of it. So this was a great conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it this week. So just before we get into that, if you want to support the show, then you can do on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's a couple of different tiers there, both of which are reasonably priced. Additionally, or alternatively, you can buy a musicality t-shirt from the Hot Flush Bandcamp page, hotflush.bandcamp.com. If you go there now and they're not there, then just wait a day or two. They may be up there by the time this pod comes up. They might be a day or two late, but they're awesome tees and you can grab one for 25 quid. So yeah, that's the way in which you can support us and what we're doing here because um, the more resources we have, the more content we can put out, basically. It's almost as simple as that. Alternatively, or additionally, follow the Spotify playlist. In fact, just additionally, because there's you know no reason why you shouldn't do that. It contains most of the music that we talk about on the show and all the episodes. And join the conversation with us in the Discord. You don't have to be a Patreon subscriber to join the Discord. It's hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to talk about anything we talk about on the show and to join the community of cool people that we have in there it is a nice community actually so yeah do that right okay i'm gonna shut up and we'll get into without further delay manpower Manpower, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good. Um, I'm sat in a hotel in London, Docklands, and for the first time I've woke up after a full night's sleep in a hotel without any hangover, without having to run to get a flight or anything. <laughs> it just feels really weird, to be totally honest. What are you up to in London? Um, I came down to see a friend uh, about a J-O-B, believe it or not. Um, my, my interests kind of run beyond dance music um, or sort of dance music adjacent stuff. Um, so, yeah, I came down to speak about doing a, a temporary contract working on some community work to do with dance music because I really enjoy doing it. And, uh, yeah, we've agreed to do it. So, um, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail or give too much away, but... Um, Obviously, there's quite a bit starting to happen around about the Docklands now with regards to dance music in London, and hopefully, going to try and find ways to sort of fold community benefits into that. Right. Okay. I mean, so that's that's quite interesting actually, because one of the things I wanted to talk about was the kind of community aspect of the scene in the city that you're from, which is Newcastle. And um, yeah, we've we've talked quite a lot about like the sort of different characteristics of different music scenes in cities around the world on the show before and Newcastle is obviously northeast of England and I think for people who are not familiar with the kind of regional politics of the UK kind of just lump the kind of north of England in as one thing which is obviously definitely not so Tell me a bit about the way the scene is now in Newcastle, because it's got a little bit of press, like Joe Muggs wrote an article in The Guardian about the um, that sort of quite DIY aspect of the, the scene as it is today. So just tell me a little bit about what status is now in Newcastle. 
<laughs> That's totally one of those, well, I'm glad you asked moments because it's something I like to, <laughs> to, to, to talk about quite a lot. So, yeah, I mean, sort of potted history of the UK, um, obviously Manchester and the, the North West were, were an early sort of hotbed for dance music and very visible because Manchester is very good at sort of projecting, or the North West is very good at projecting what they do outwardsly to the world. Um, and obviously you've got clubs that are very famous like the Hacienda and sort of scenes that came from that and even just sort of down to the, the sort of rave network of places like Shelley's Laser Dome, etc., and all of these type of things. The South, everybody kind of knows the story all the way from the orbital rave scene, all of the famous clubs that you've had in London, so we kind of know what's going on in there. The Northeast, so it's been quite a different story, but, I mean, we have the second longest-running house party in the whole of, uh, of Europe, I think, which is Shindig, which started off in the early 90s and ran continuously up until a couple of years ago, but they still do events. And sort of house and techno, have always had a, a foothold in the northeast, but the difference between the northeast to the rest of the country, well, there's a couple of things. One, if you combine all of the major northeast cities, which are like Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Durham, I guess, but all of those regions, it comes to about 5 million people, which is about the same size as Greater Manchester. So obviously we don't have the same scale, shall we say, as uh, other parts of the country. Um, but we've always had an amazing and healthy scene. The difference is, is that it's just, insular is the wrong term, but it's just been self-sufficient, if you like. Um, there's not been a need for people to talk about it. People haven't really traditionally wanted to to travel out of the region. And um, to sort of over-intellectualise that, my dad, who passed away in September, God rest his soul, he uh, always had a theory on it because he's from Newcastle, but he was living in Liverpool. Um, and he pointed out that if you go to Liverpool, for instance, it was docking, so they had to deal with people outwardly and sort of, you know, like deal with the rest of the world. If you went to Manchester, it was mainly warehousing. If you go to Leeds, it was mainly market towns. And they were all things where they had to deal with people from outside their area to sort of go about their daily stuff. Uh, whereas in the northeast, we were all down coal mines or in shipyards, and people just came and took stuff away, and we didn't deal with them. And I think that's always been traditionally the kind of makeup from the people of the northeast is we're having a great time, things are good, but why do we need to shout about it or tell anybody else about it? But uh, obviously the internet has changed how everybody sort of acts and what everybody else does over there, like around the world and sort of everything is outwardly facing now. And in recent years, we've had a few sort of really prominent success stories um, from, I don't want to call them mainstream because, you know, I get on with, well, I know most of them quite well and I get on really well with them. And that almost sounds like a, um, sort of a negative term from where I'm coming from, but just like a more widely known sort of end of dance music. So obviously Richie Ahmed was a, a bit of an outlier working with Hot Creations and he became super famous. Um, then um, you cannot not mention Patrick Topman who just became DJ Mag's um, DJ of the year. Got a new lad called Ben Ben Helmsley who's came through, who's sort of part of this kind of Ibiza trance revival thing. Um, um, and he's... He's going to be a mega star. He's already done an essential mix. Um, there's a new guy called Shaq, who I guess I don't know a great deal about, but like I think he's probably going to have a number one record um, on Ministry of Sound really soon. Um, so that so all of a sudden there seems to be like a renewed interest now that people are sort of outwardly facing. But it would almost give you the impression that that's the only thing that comes out of the northeast. Um, and again, no shade on any of these guys because, you know, massive respect for anybody from where I'm from who does anything because it's, it's pretty hard to sort of get anywhere from where I'm from, you know what I mean? But, um, no, but they're not the whole story, but I think from a press point of view, they do 
sort of fit with what people's impression of people from the northeast would be like. So it's been quite sort of um, convenient for the press to get behind. It's made it easier for the press to get behind them, not to take away from any of their achievements. But the northeast, like anywhere else, it's sort of like it's got you know its own sort of peculiar traditions. And the other thing about the area is I think it's quite a self-taught area. There's a sort of different different taking sidebar are you familiar with the Viz magazine no I'm not actually Viz comic no. oh Viz Viz, right. Viz yeah 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 and... actually, absolutely yeah. I am yeah <laughs> of course yeah. you are right if you pick up a copy of Viz that actually tells you everything you need to know about the North East right from the self uh, the sense of humour to sort of you know it's incredibly stupid but also it belies a, a great deal of wit and intelligence underneath it and that's pretty much what the North East like uh, if you took it on surface level, you'd think it was sort of, you know, very uh, old-worldy and very sort of unreconstructed, but, like, uh, you know... Right, yeah, just for people who aren't aware, it features characters like Johnny Fartpants and Sid the Sexist and <laughs> these kinds of things, which, yeah, on the face of it, like, very lowbrow, but actually there's a lot of intelligence that goes into it too. Yeah, and exactly, it works on so many different levels. Exactly that, yeah, and it's. I, I think, yeah, that you'd be so hard-pushed to find a Northeasterner who isn't sort of, uh, you know, proud of the Viz. And on top of that, I mean, there's loads of things that come from the Northeast that kind of short. Well, whenever I mention from the Northeast, everybody mentions Jimmy Neal or Ant and Deck, but uh, I'd sooner they came back with sort of people like uh, Vic, uh, Vic and Bob. Do you know what I mean? Actually, everybody mentions Gaza, the footballer, first of all, and Raul Mort, which is a bit of a, bit of a problem. But yeah, I'd, I'd rather people associate us with people like uh, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer, who, again... On the surface of things, you would think were incredibly silly and stupid, but actually, if you look at it, there's a, a big sort of vein of Dadaism and abstract hum- humour that runs through everything that they do. And uh, I think that's sort of, you know, even with my own music, I tend to make music that sounds, on the surface of things, incredibly daft a lot of the time. But actually, when you, you look into it, it's sort of references and intricacies that sort of reveal themselves on further investigation. And I guess that would be how I would describe the Northeast. It looks quite simple, but there's a lot that reveals itself on further investigation if you come down here. As he says, Joe Muggs from The Guardian found, I love that piece that he wrote. I mean, not least because I featured in it, obviously, <laughs> being, a, being such a, an egomaniac, etc. But um, no, it's a, it's, it's a good time to be from Northeast England. It really is. So the angle that was pushed in that piece was the DIY thing and i guess that well well the, the way he put it was in in the context of i suppose the industrialization over a number of decades now right but then also in the context of the pandemic and like the relative lack of interest that the central government has had over time with the northeast so is that is that fair it's just in terms of like the scene like the, the, the diy aspect of it is, is that how things work now in newcastle in terms of promoting pies and that kind of stuff um yeah the, the diy element of it i mean if, if you look at central government take it from that point first of all if you looked at a heat map of austerity um over the decade plus that the uh current conservative government's been in and you look at the cuts that have been done as a thing. Um, the biggest cuts straight away, like we are the literally ground zero of the majority of the cuts that happened to anything to do with arts funding. Um, because we're such an outlier to them, I guess, and because they've always hated us. <laughs> I think it's the easiest way to put it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, that's the start of it. When you look at this sort of industrialization, I mean, Thatcherism, for instance, I, I come from a town called Wall's End. Um, and I lived on a street, um, and at the very end of the street 
There was a shipyard called Swan Hunters, which was one of the most famous shipyards in the country. And in 1991, um, it had to shut down. And literally, the entire town that I lived in was out of work overnight, like like everybody. And it just changed the the, the region into a wasteland in the 90s. And it's it's been a period of that, whether it's happened in the 60s, uh, when the, uh, the Armstrong's munitions factory got cut down and, um, in the 80s. Um, well, also in the 60s as well, when most of the regional pits got shut down, uh, the coal mines. Um, so it's, it's a constant thing of it. So, you know, we are a, quite a, a deprived area um, and a very unsupported area. Um, so, yeah, the, the DIY thing has been necessity here. We, uh, you know, it, it was interesting that a resident advisor um, yesterday posted up, or maybe it was the day before, posted up a, a, a think piece about... Um, are working class people disadvantaged, which I, I think is sort of, you know, <laughs> the most... <laughs> do you reckon? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean <laughs> who, who thought? Who, who even thought about that? But, it, it's, but the, the difference is, is that in other areas or in a lot of places, disadvantaged people have structures and things in place that will level that for them, um, whether it be charities. And, and now these organisations are starting to sort of show some weighting towards areas like the northeast uh, you know to, to balance things out but for years that wasn't the case it wasn't a case of like not only do i not have rich parents but there's also i, I don't come from an education system where um i my face fits well enough that i, I can also go out and uh, apply for something uh, some kind of funding that would sort of make up for not having rich parents do you know what i mean um, and instead what it is is that People in areas like the northeast, and obviously it's not exclusive to where I come from. I just I have more affinity with where I come from naturally, you know. Um, they only have the opportunity to fail at anything once. Uh, if you can imagine, so like if you look at the the, the Brian Eno sort of um, oblique strategy thing, where he sort of you know fail, fail again, fail better, and then you become good at something. The, there's a certain element of luxury in that. Um, everybody, I, I mean, first of all, for me, like I was actively discouraged from getting involved in music or anything to do with the creative industry because it just seemed like the biggest waste of time to everybody I knew uh, where I came from. And sort of like, yeah, it's fair enough. If you want to mess around with some music in your spare time on, a, on your day off, go for it. But like, it's, this is not a career. And it's because they all saw sort of how futile it was sort of historically in the place that I come from. And what the reason being is that like, you know, if I was, but most people, if they wanted to go and sort of um, say, not even pursue a music career, but put on a club night, do you know what I mean? Put on a party, book some DJs, get some people in. If you lost your shirt, you know, if you if you if you were sort of like lost a fortune doing that, that's you done for years. Do you know what I mean? That's a hole that you have to pull yourself out of. Whereas someone with relative privilege is like, oh, well, I lost that money. Um, and then they lose a little bit less money the next time, and then they lose a little bit money uh, less money the next time, and eventually they have the space for it to turn into something sort of you know worthwhile, and eventually, hopefully, make them some money. People in areas like the northeast don't have the time to wait for that. They need some kind of patron or somebody to be able to support them in doing stuff and to be able to develop their ideas. Um, because the only other option is lose all of your money and sort of, you know, impoverish yourself for potentially the rest of your life. Or do, or do you know what I mean? Or take a menial job that you, doesn't provide you any space to do anything creative. So that, that's starting to change now. But yeah, for the, for the Northeast, we've had to be DIY. We've had to figure out ways around it, which means it's sort of 
affordable and doable and sort of sustainable um, in a in an environment that isn't very fertile for that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is also to do with culture, right? And in in sort of entrenched culture, because like you said, in comparison to the North West, which does have much more of a kind of established pattern of people becoming musicians and you know it being just a a legitimate thing to to do with your life like i imagine there's much less kind of skepticism you're completely right but it's more than that they actually represent a dream so we we have a creative dream Uh, so so what ends up happening is you're completely right there's an entrenched culture in the northwest etc there's sort of you know a history of famous bands that come from manchester there's a history of famous bands obviously that come from liverpool um and they're seen as places where if you go there, you are capable of becoming as big as you want. You know, like Oasis. I mean, fair enough, they never cracked in America. Sorry, Liam. But um, Oasis, um, obviously, were the, um, were, were the biggest band in the UK throughout the 90s, and they never had to leave Manchester to do so. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you can do it if you're in Manchester. It's that simple. If you're, if you're from a town outside, it doesn't matter. As long as you come into the scene, this scene can propel you out into the world. Um, obviously, London, naturally. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, that's going to be the case. Even sort of Bristol, which is kind of similar to Newcastle in, in a lot of ways. Like, you know, in Bristol, it's possible you can go there. Brighton, like a lot of places in the south, it's sort of like you don't have to leave here to become big. We're, we're capable of propelling you out there. Whereas if you were in Newcastle traditionally, and up until recently, um, or perhaps still now, it would be like, well, if I want to get big, I need to move to Manchester or London. Or in my case... Um, the manpower thing took off when I moved to Berlin and I didn't feel like it was possible for it to take off in the northeast uh, just I, and I think for me and sort of this is kind of going off on a bit of a tangent but for the reason why I got involved in sort of work uh, to do with social and community outputs in the northeast involving music is my ambition was to see people just say well do you know what it is I can move to those places there's nothing stopping me but it's not a necessity and that it's possible to stay in Newcastle and so that people, so that we wouldn't actually see that bleed of talent moving out of the city, uh, which is, I mean, again, I would say that Patrick, who's a, a good friend of mine, I've got, like, I have to put this out there straight away, and Ben, who I don't really know as well, or any of those guys, um, they've stayed in Newcastle while I don't think that they're necessarily exactly the kind of, the, the type of, like, they're not necessarily representative of everything I do musically, but they're they a great starting point that they've stayed in Newcastle and their sort of global careers are burgeoning without them feeling they have to leave. And hopefully that acts as an example for people who um, perhaps have more challenging music or stuff that won't find as much mainstream acceptance and they start staying because that's where a kind of, you know, a local... Um, healthy scene comes from is, 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 is those sort of outlying people those those outsider people creating stuff and sort of leading the conversation rather than uh, doing what's being done elsewhere yeah i mean it's it's about i guess role models and you know people establishing a pathway which can then inspire other people and i mean it's funny because i mean newcastle is actually a really beautiful city i always think when i go there i think wow this is like the center of newcastle is stunningly attractive right 100 percent. it's one of the most beautiful cities in the uk for me yeah i I totally agree totally agree so okay tell me about the bedwetter project that you did during i guess it was some over the course of a couple of years leading up to your artist in residency because this is something which is 
totally linked to like music in in Newcastle, right? Yeah, I mean it's well, it's 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 autobiographical, so I guess it's linked to me, which naturally I'm linked to the northeast, and sort of you know, I, I, I hopefully it comes through that I'm very proud and sort of very um, kind of militantly supportive of where I come from and the, the people of my region and the history of the region. But I mean, the, the bedwet I think came out. I, I don't know, like so. I think naturally I'm I'm a bit of a a difficult person, shall I say, sometimes, in, in certain ways. Like, I, I do things the hard way, or I overthink things. It, it turned out in, in um, lockdown um, that I, it's become quite apparent that I've got ADHD, but I haven't been able, because of the NHS delays, I haven't been able to get the official diagnosis, but I've spoken to sort of um, healthcare specialists who've kind of said no <laughs> definitely have just so I'm waiting over the thing but that it's kind of explained a, a bit of my awkwardness throughout life and one of the things is um overthinking so much that I, I, I hit crippling writer's block making dance music um I, I hit this point where I was like instead of just doing what it should do is like creating something that's just exciting visceral and of the moment and just makes you want to dance i'd be like but people <laughs> you know you know the meme of the, the the badly drawn meme of the guy at the party in the corner going like they don't know they're listening to the original pressing or whatever else <laughs> like that was like me when anybody was listening to my music it would be like like they don't know that i know about stockhausen or do, do you know what i mean just something like like, like really arty um so i was like look i'm trying to hammer in too many smart or clever references and all i'm doing is I'm making the music less danceable and, you know, it's called dance music. That's probably what you need to do. So it's like, what, what, what is my other option? I was like, well, just make music that isn't to dance to and just load that all up with, with those type of things instead. So it started off as an exercise just to break writer's block. And then very rapidly, these pieces I was writing just ended up being like heavily autobiographical, heavily either about me or about my history or about my family history or about the region that I come from. And a kind of album formed itself, um, which was the first one I did, which was the, the Billy Miller's Dead album, um, which Billy Miller's roundabout that got removed in, in North Shields. <laughs> That's literally where the title came from. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was just this kind of, I don't know, it's sort of part, part ontology that like it had family archival recordings in, there's an audiovisual thing. And like doing it was the important thing rather than having any application for it was just an enjoyable process and it really helped with the the music I was making as dance music as well because like I don't know I'd been just being able to pour being a smart arse into that instead um, so I, I was left with this piece of work that I, I was really fond of and then I, as often happens I was like oh bugger do you know I'm going to release it so I, I put it out as um, um, just on my own label me 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 and it was really really well received it was I, was, I, I didn't think anybody was going to listen to it I didn't even I never even considered that there might be an audience out there for this type of thing it was more just to get it off my plate if, uh, if you get what I mean um, so that felt really good and then randomly uh, I don't know if you know this but there was like this pandemic that happened a couple of months later um, and everybody just stopped staging or leaving their houses and were allowed out of the house for two hours a day. Um, so I kind of found myself with a load of time on my hands. Um, Sage Gate said, um, which is... Okay, let me let me stop you there. Let me stop you there for a moment before we go on to that. You used the term hauntology there. Can you... Okay. <laughs> can you just... Can you define what that term is deemed to mean with regards to music because philosophically it comes from Derrida I believe but when people use that term with regards to music what are 
what do they mean? Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I didn't know the Derrida thing. I, I've always treated it as the idea of um, conceptual and uh, audio reframes um, that return throughout the music that you're, um, that you're creating um, that sort of um, harken back to your own personal experiences or, you know, your own... Um, your own life, your own history, your own personal history. So for me, there was elements of, in the refrain of some of the music was made. You know, I mentioned Swan Hunter's Shipyards. Uh, there's, a, there's a piece that details um, the shipyards with that talks about the, um, the, sorry, that uses archive recordings from the 1940s of the workers there, uh, but also uses sounds of the actual riveting and the building of the ships and the percussion. Um, so that that kind of refrain or the actual organic sounds of the concept are actually echoed throughout it, or or even just as simply there's there's one about our metro system that just uses the sounds in the of, of the actual electronic overhead passing cables. There's the recordings of my auntie who was a local historian, well, my great great auntie, uh, talking about her life and the vocal of that keeps on sort of returning through it. And yeah, they're just sort of. Um, I guess it, a lot of personalised motifs that run through that that sort of build the story in itself. Is that? In, I'm curious now. Does that is that in line with yeah, your yeah, understanding yeah. of the term? Because uh, <laughs> you actually know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, I I, I asked that question in, in a bit of a adversarial way. I realised, which is not what I meant. At all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, what does that really mean then, <laughs> manpower? Right. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think originally. The musical reference to it comes from Mark Fisher and his uh, analysis, or at least that's how I came across it anyway. But yeah, the Derrida thing is, uh, it was referring to the Spectres of Marx, mm-hmm. I think is the, um, I'm not sure it was a book or a paper or whatever, and just how the idea, Marxist ideas kind of like echo yeah, yeah, people return leftist to, yeah, yeah, thought yeah, and philosophy. But with regards to, to music, it's been used in basically that kind of a way that you just described, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... But I, I wanted to, yeah, I, I wanted to put it up because it's an interesting one, which... Uh, yeah, um, I, I, did, I didn't know <laughs> the, uh, the providence of it at all, to be honest, so that's really interesting for me. Um, but I, I think that's, it's fairly um, par for the course. It's something gets brought up as a literary or a, a criticism tool and then gets really cack-handedly applied to music until it actually means something completely different. Uh, that, that's sort of like... That's the, that, that's the effect that music journalism has on music, I'm afraid, like a music journalist. Yeah, I think it gets misused quite a lot, to be honest. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, well, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go into my critique of it, actually, at all, because we're going to go down a rabbit hole there. So going on to what you were going to subsequently say about the uh, the thing at Sage. So the Sage Gate said is, uh, it's another thing to be really proud of in, in Northeast. It's um, like the technological wonder of a, um, of a concert venue. It's like one of the top five of its type in the world. It's very, it was built in 2004 and it's very unique uh, in its structure and the sort of science that's gone into creating what's essentially an opera house. But they're also, to a a lesser or greater degree, they're also involved in a lot of sort of uh, community music um, and sort of, you know, uh, like outreach type stuff. Um, And they also, every year, they appoint two to three artists in residence. Um, So, I mean, they they totally went on my radar. I'm I'm not from that world at all. Uh, You know, I'm from an underground music scene that, that's literally the the up until a couple of years ago was the the full extent of my 
connection with any music really was just from going out and clubbing from a really young age. Um, um, but I thought, you know what it is? Like, there's a lockdown, bugger it. So I applied because I'd, I'd just finished and released the Bedwetter album. I was really, really blown away by sort of how welcomed it was. Um, and so that was really encouraging because it's just nice. Like, I don't know if you're a needy bugger like me anyway, it's just nice when you feel like somebody really gets what you're doing. And if you do something that's really personal and they really get that, that's even more rewarding, you know, because if, if you're taking the risk of putting, uh, putting, I don't know, just being vulnerable really through music. So I had this this plan already for what I wanted to do as a second album and it was really ambitious. So I applied for artists in residence and I told them what the plan was and they just got back in touch and they said, yeah, we'd love you to. And I was kind of like, damn, I didn't didn't actually expect it to be a yes. <laughs> what do I do now? So so, I, so I, I, was, I was like, well, let's just think of the most difficult and ambitious thing I can do. So I said, well, I want to do this. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Like what? <laughs> like, like trying to almost put them off. So I was like, oh well, um, so we have probably the most, the second most important orchestra in the UK after the um, the London Philharmonic, which is the Royal Northern Symphonia. So I was like, right, well, I want the Royal Northern Symphonia to perform it. And they're like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, okay, when they're going to see a stop? So I just kept on coming up with like a ridiculous amount of like ambitious things. And next thing I know, I was like. Oh crap! I've got to write a symphony now. I've just promised this. So, so uh, believe it or not, yeah, well, first of all, they put me in touch with uh, a lady called Fiona Bryce, who is just wonderful. And I mean, I, I, you know, I get credit for writing a symphony, but like, there's writing a symphony and there's writing a symphony. You know, like Bowie wrote all of these albums, but if it wasn't for the marvelous musicians and the people he worked with on him, they wouldn't have been exactly the same. Do you know what I mean? It's not like he wrote every guitar part or every bass part. So Fiona's an orchestral arranger, so um, she helped translate the language of orchestra for me, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's stuff that you, people train for their entire lives to be able to do um, and worked with me on sort of like how this translates as a, a symphony piece. She was just wonderful. I mean, she was, used to be a member of the band Placebo. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and she used to like, she's one of the, she's like, a, as a violinist, she was like the one who always ended up on top of the pop. So I think she's like played with like Kanye West and everybody like that as well. She's just been there. She's, she's like, you know, she's she, uh, she's big in the game, but um, also as a, as a solo artist, she releases a lot of music on Bella Union, which is a, a label I absolutely love um, from a band I absolutely love, the Cocteau Twins. So that was like, so she was just really cool. Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, we're going to introduce you in a range. I was like, oh Christ, she's so cool. Um, so that felt really good. So we worked together. And the weird part was, right, the writing of the music, um, I, I almost don't want to admit this. It took us two weeks to write the symphony. That bit was easy. Um, <laughs> it was the staging. So, yeah, hang on a sec. Let me let me ask you about working with a with an arranger. So, how does that actually work in practice? Like, what is the working relationship there? A lot of back and forth, really, and a lot of sort of. So, are you are you basically writing the themes, and then she is translating them to the various different instrumentation which is used in the in the orchestra? Is that broadly how it works? In some occasions, yes. I mean, this was just a very collaborative process with a lot of back and forth after I'd written the initial piece of music for two weeks uh, in the two weeks. So, in, in two weeks, I wrote a piece of music, um, the like forty five piece of music in eight movement, and what we did was then we had a back and forth about which parts, because it's a hybrid symphony, so a lot of the electronic elements remained completely in situ as they were written as an electronic component of the thing, you know? It's uh, like uh, they're, they're equally in there. And some parts we had a discussion and would be like, okay, um, 
Now, this needs to be represented by a string section, and then in some parts I would write it for sort of first viola, second viola, and, and try my version of it, uh, another version, so you come back. And I'll tell you what there was a lot of. There was a lot of her saying um, it's a word in Italian and me saying, I don't know what that word means. And her going, it's when it goes, do you know what I mean? And a lot of sort of singing to each other. Which was brilliant. Do you know what I mean? It was a really like sort of you know it was it's like it was like when I first met my wife and um, she couldn't understand my Geordie, um, and we used to have to sort of like <laughs> like understand each other in different ways like that as well. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of back and forth about just sort of you know that kind of thing. And I mean, I, I don't want to minimise what she did because like some some parts are just entirely Fiona coming up with string sections based on what I've already done as well. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 it's worked out that I'm the person who's written a symphony and she's been the arranger, but I've already said if we do any work in future, it has to be presented as both of us. And what ended up happening before this was presented, we didn't present it as um, Bedwetter. We presented it ultimately because it just felt wrong. I, I insisted that we presented it as Bedwetter and Bryce um, because, uh, you know, regardless of how it, how it worked out or what it was, it's like it wouldn't exist if Fiona hadn't have came in and helped me with the arranging. And again, the, there are sections that I would just literally say, I mean, she'll say it's me, but I I can't hear me in it anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, I've, I've opened up the door and uh, she's arranged it so well. So it was, it was just a really rewarding collaborative process from that point of view as well. I learned so much, but it's one of those things where you learn that like, the biggest thing I learned is like I've got a lot to learn, um, and it's gonna. But it's it's really rewarding and really enjoyable. So the next project that we're looking at to do, for instance, um, I'm doing on a on a two hundred sorry not two hundred five hundred year old pipe organ, um, with a um, a chorus and using sort of uh, recorded materials of um, um, my granddad's Alzheimer's sing along group. Wow. Okay. Um, wow. Um, and we're presenting it at the church where him and my grandma were married 70 years ago in September. So, it, like, those type of things, I, I don't get to do that with house music. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> no, it's, no, absolutely it's like, not. It's, yeah, and I love house music and I love the culture and I love everything it does. I love DJing and all of that. But I, I'm a bit of a busybody and this sort of type of thing just really appeals to me, like the, the challenging, scary end of stuff instead. Um so yeah, I am. Um, so the sage thing came about, as I say, we wrote it quite quickly. The really difficult thing, um, I mean, there's one thing which I can't really even talk about publicly, but in 2021, we had quite a traumatic family situation, like an incredibly uh, traumatic and sort of ongoing family situation. So that derailed presenting the the symphony to start with. Well, the first thing that derailed it was that just the lockdown kept going longer than anybody thought. Then the next time it was supposed to happen, had this family thing, then we had to come round about it. So it, it got like almost delayed by two years, but it kind of grew within the two years. So by the time we came to presenting it, I ended up putting it on with um, uh, William Basinski, the experimental ambient artist who, who wrote quite notably um, the disintegration loops. Well, I guess he didn't write. He didn't write it really. When you think about no, it, no, that's he, the thing. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he facilitated. <laughs> he came the, across them. Yeah, exactly. He facilitated the disintegration loops. I guess. Um, but he his sort of approach to music was very, very evident, especially in the first Bedwetter album, but also in sort of the approach that I took for this. And like, I, I mean, because I'm not a super expert on any of this, and I'm at the beginning of my journey. There's there's loads of other influences and people who 
um, sort of um, influence the final work, but they're all fairly obvious to anybody who, you know, there's no real, <laughs> the equivalent of a deep cut in there at all. People like, I don't know, Gavin Bryars and his work on the sinking of the Titanic and also Jesus Blood never failed me yet. Um, and then another massive, massive influence on it um, is actually another Northeaster, which is Paddy McAloon from um, the band Prefab Sprout. He did an album called, uh, well, he was he was losing his eyesight um, and thought he was going to go blind at one point, I believe. And uh, all he did was he just sat with an FM radio and just tuned in between each dial. And he loved the effect of sort of the disorient effect of just one voice and then static and then another voice. So he, he started noting down the... Um, the snippets of conversations that he heard as he as he as he went through all of these different radio stations, and then he recorded a, a gigantic piece of orchestral music with just one disembodied voice saying all of these different phrases, you know, and it, it turns into some sort of abstract story. It's just a marvelous piece of work, one of my favorite pieces of music ever. So I'd like to say it was an influence, but the, the, there was elements that ended up not being recorded in this first version, but hopefully we'll go on into the next version that I do of it. That. I sometimes don't know where the line is between sort of homage and just straight rip off, but I've got, I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling. I'm probably veering more up into rip off territory than I am into homage territory. But you know, like there's loads of things like that in it. And the, the thing is, sort of like you've seen this this diagram that often gets thrown about a creative project and the the sort of um, the trajectory it takes. So it's like on a curve upwards, and you're like, this is amazing. This is going to be the best thing ever wow, I can't believe I do this. And then as the months go by, then it starts going down. And it's like, oh, no, it's not going to be as good as I thought it was. Oh, no, this is bad. Oh, God. And then it gets really lower than you ever thought just beforehand. Like, this is the worst thing I've ever done. I'm going to be ruined. And then it comes up a little bit halfway again. And then it's like you kind of end up on a stage of going, oh, my God, I got away with it. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, that was all right, actually. Was okay. yeah, it, wasn't as bad, it wasn't as bad as it looked at one point. So I've gone through that kind of stage of it. But I still have the ambitions to do the bits that are on the top curve of like that were amazing so i've got the, the whole project itself the background of it was it was dealing with um um the commonality of working class people around the world so we've got a village called Burtley in county durham um that was saved completely like it would have been wiped off the face of the map and just completely fallen to the ground when its local industry died but the kamatsu digger factory from japan opened up there and now this entire village is based around Kamatsu digger machines and the entire factory is run on Japanese principles even down to the uniforms and basically what's happened is there's this nexus between um, northeastern working class people living a life almost identical to people in Kamatsu city in Japan uh, wow. and their working class life and uh, what you realise is just like as a fraternity that's wrong because like, that, that's men that like suggests um, masculinity only but as, I don't know as the, so the, the commonality between both areas is there's just certain things that make working class people the same the world over and I wanted to celebrate and explore that and especially when we talk about the the access to the arts because I didn't have any access to the arts until I kind of made a name for myself as being a, an underground dance music uh, and commercial sort of entity traveling the world and getting paid for it and whatever else that was that was the only thing that enabled me to be able to go out and do this piece of creative work if I just turned up as 18 year old Jeff from Battle Hill I just I wouldn't have been able to get in it at all it was dance music that made this possible for me so I just the idea was like let's do a piece of work that actually acknowledges that and also 
if the door's open for me, let's do it in a way that I can kind of sort of like, you know, keep it open for people to come in behind us. So that was the entire plan, which is why, bugger it, I mean, if anybody's got this far into me blathering, then they deserve to hear a bit honestly. That's why I found it so egregious that resident advisor would suddenly take this claim over the last few days that, you know, that they were going to do this sort of soft core exploration into the um, working class <laughs> access to the arts when they studiously ignored a project that I've done for two years that was about working class access to the arts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was looking at it in absolute disbelief. Like, oh, you you care about this, do you? This is something that's that, that sort of um, Joe Castor or whichever middle class sort of editor that you've got decided to focus on it now. It's just it was it felt like such lip service. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but bugger it, you know, the truth's the truth, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, these things are out there, and there are people. I'm you know, I'm not me on about it who care about working class people being able to do the things that they want to do, whether it be through works of art like this or whether it be through community action or through funding or anything like that. Um, but it's it's not easy. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and like, I, I couldn't have done this if I hadn't have become manpower. And like, literally, this project's 10 years old in April and I couldn't have done this with it, without it being eight years old, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. I mean, basically, economic class inequality is basically ignored by quite a lot of people who otherwise are very much into the kind of inequality debate, right? And I will mm-hmm. never forget a, something that was tweeted at me by someone uh, who should remain nameless, but who basically said that economic inequality is identity politics for white blokes, which I just thought was just blew my mind at the time and seems to blow my mind, but I think actually explains quite a lot of the sort of reluctance to engage with it. Yeah, there's, there's two different ways about it, isn't there? I mean, I, you know what I mean? I can also see from being sort of like a marginalised person, um, like, so inter- like where something that's less intersectional would feel sort of unfair on you, if you get what I mean. So so I guess I, I don't want to position myself as an expert in this at all because it's more a learning journey for me than me being a voice on this subject. I'm just finding it fascinating finding out about it. But obviously intersectionality now is the um is the focus of of the inequality uh, discussion and i think quite rightly so don't get me wrong but i do come from an era where the motto ain't no war but class war was was the the focus of it if you get what i mean yeah so so at one yeah. point there was an element of like you know um the, the thinking would have been well you know sort of black white queer straight um, whatever it doesn't matter they have and we have not and we need to band together to to fight for equality uh, which is a valid argument but an equally valid argument is like well you know there's privilege and there's relative privilege yeah you might be working class but I'm working class um, uh, from a, a, a disadvantaged minority and my identity as either a you know a, a queer person for instance also adds a further level of disadvantage so therefore I'm more disadvantaged than you, therefore, you know. Take, I mean, it just becomes a, a competition, back. right? Well, like, I don't, which is completely I, I don't, ridiculous. I, I'm not going to go as far as to say it's ridiculous, um, but I can understand why people, I can understand both sides of the argument, I really can, which is why, and this isn't, I promise this isn't deliberate fence sitting at all. It's just, it's been from, like, for instance, like, I've rattled on about poverty in the Northeast, but I lived in Mexico for five years. And I, and I, you know, I've, I've, and sort of, I've even sort of talked about me being sort of disadvantaged as a working class person, 
but I've seen the way my Mexican wife's treated when she goes through customs in the US. So I, it, it's kind of like, like I, I like to have a voice on something, but I'd rather be involved in a conversation to find out other people's sort of feelings on it and sort of be able to, I don't, I don't know, it's quite crippling. <laughs> I, was about to say, I was about to say kind of a woe is me as a middle-aged white man conversation, which is probably the stupidest thing I could ever do in my life. But, but it's, quite, it's quite interesting being where I am and the identity that I am, being in the middle of all of these things and seeing all of these different ways of doing it because it's just like, I don't know, I keep on going through a lot of perspective shifts and the only thing it's telling me is that I stand on shifting sands and it's better to watch and figure these things out at the moment than it is to have a, a very strong opinion on it. So now what I try to do is I just try to be helpful. And I know that sounds really trite and really silly, but it's sort of like, it's the only way I can see for going forward. One thing I really have realised in the last couple of years is I used to get involved a lot in sort of shouting about sort of macro politics, whether it be like UK politics or whether it be international politics um, or policies and things like that. And I just like, it's pissing in the wind. And like, it, it really is. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I it's, could, it's absolutely I, pointless. Reach exactly the same conclusion. But I do know that stuff I can't do regionally can make a difference to people who's, who, who I can look in the eyes of. And I, I just don't know. I think if we all silo off and start doing good things on a local level, I don't think it's going to solve all the world's ills or all the uh, inequity. But it's something to make it a bit better, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Which is more than I can say from me screaming the odds on Twitter. Yeah, and you can say that for anyone on Twitter, basically. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah, help exactly. at all. You know, just having this sort of abstract discussion on really broad issues, which, you know, no individual voice can really have any kind of impact on. Like, literally, no one. The, the like, really bad. Go on. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, like, uh, did you ever see people dunking on people on Twitter? I used to do it myself. And, like, you know, like, uh, like honestly, if you, if Piers Morgan or Nigel Farage or Jeremy Clarkson say something odious online, like it doesn't matter how good your retort is or how much you like, I really showed them in 140 characters. It's literally. Did you ever go to a pantomime when you were a kid? I went to one this Christmas, actually. Funnily enough. Right, right. So it's 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 like when it's like when the evil Abednazar or whatever yeah. comes on stage and the whole crowd hisses at him, like and you're going hiss. Do you know what I mean? It's feeding them. It's exactly the response that they want. What is that? So yeah. So I, but then I, they I, get I, the I biggest know, so cheer yeah. at the end, right? This is the that, that, exactly, exactly that. That's exactly the point. That that's exactly the the, the analogy sort of core there. Yeah. So like, yeah, I don't know. So like, like I say, come down for this job today to see what I'm doing. I, I, it's quite. I'll tell you what has been, and again, because we're halfway through. So, well, however far through we've been speaking for quite a while, I can kind of say it because might not show up on a skim. But what I found really difficult was being involved in sort of community or um, cultural or social type things that I actually care about is really, really hard because what you keep on coming up against is organisations and people who don't really care about it, but are very good at doing it and are very good as part of the system. And sort of um, that became a little bit disheartening a while back. So again, I've had to kind of refocus and that's why I stopped what I was doing and where I was doing it took a little bit of time off and that's why I'm kind of coming back to do this project uh, in London instead. Can you be I, a little bit more specific about that? Do you mean... I'm going to be mildly specific. There's yeah. organisations or bodies that are created um, to sort of make a positive change. And in some cases they do. I mean, I'm not saying that they're absolutely pointless, but what they end up doing is they become the competitor to kind of new ideas. One of the big sort of 
so the sage really benefited me. So that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about other people um, so that I, that, that doesn't have to necessarily be me, but give a case study. So the sage gate said, um, we've just talked about the wonderful thing that they did with me and sort of how that really benefited me and created an opportunity. The, in that Guardian piece, they spoke with an organisation called the Old Police House, who were really at the cutting edge of sort of avant-garde and experimental music. And their attitude is that organisations like Sage, etc., actually end up becoming a big financial drain and they prevent that money going out to the likes of uh, the more experimental or the more community-based sort of organisations. Now, I wouldn't go as far to say that about the Sage, but what I would say is I think that the funding or the money that comes down um, is often given to organisations who want to dictate how it's spent rather than asking the people from the communities or the places how they want to spend it. And it tends to be identified, like the, the route map tends to be identified by organisations, but these organisations feature people who are getting paid regardless. You know, these are salaried people trying to work out what the aims are of people who live and die off this type of stuff. Uh, and I think that's the, I think that's the wrong way around. Um, and it became quite frustrating that some organisations that I encountered just seemed to be existing. Like they, they would get a big chunk of money, so the first thing they do is they'd hire a new person. Do you know what I mean? And so, so they end up becoming sort of self self sustaining bodies rather than sort of um, you know um, actually getting out of it. Yeah, they acquire a sort of momentum of their own, yeah. right? Like they sort of seek to sort of justify exactly their own that, existence. Yeah. Uh, and that, that became quite difficult for me because it felt like you were competing with the people who were supposed to be, uh, the people who, you know, were, were facilitating the type of stuff you're doing. But I was finding that organisations in general were keen to work uh, with people from dance music to make them look cool. Um, but they weren't keen to actually support the dance music that got me there. So like, you know, people would be happy to support sort of uh, to have me as a face or, or an audience or organisations to work with as a face or an audience, but they didn't necessarily want to support the things that we do on an everyday. And we are helping the community. We do do those type of things. So the ultimate irony for me is that like not being able to get it off the ground in, in, in Newcastle, which really needs it. And the next thing I know is I'm looking at work um, where I'm being offered to do work in London <laughs> instead where it's already happening. So. Tell me about this thing in Docklands because you mentioned there's uh, a sort of community development movement. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but this is news to me. I mean, I don't live in London anymore, so I wouldn't necessarily know about it. But like, tell me about what's going on in Docklands. The only thing I will say is that yeah, there's there's a bunch of venue spaces and um, developments to, to do with music in in uh, the, the springing up in Docklands, um, and very similar to the northeast. You know, there's a lot of history and a lot of working class communities and there's a lot of need in the area. So the role on a very outside sort of, um, without going into too much detail about it, is basically I'm looking at ways in which I can kind of use these spaces in a way that invites and benefits and celebrates the history and the communities that are around the area where it comes in. So it's just not straight up gentrification and there's some kind of element of synergy and symbiosis, if you like, where it actually provides for the people here, whether it be opportunities for young people to use it as a trajectory to get into that thing, whether it just be in creating conversation, or whether it even be through pieces of art that use these spaces that celebrate um, the communities around the area and also invite them and the next generation of them to participate in the arts. Because as, as a resident advisor very helpfully pointed out, uh, working class participation in the arts, who knew, is on a downturn. 
So, yeah, so it's just ways of sort of kind of folding that back in. Okay, so I've got a couple of specific questions. Uh, first of which goes back to what we were talking about with your work with Fiona Bryce. So, quote, I'm very reluctant to take much in-depth instruction as I feel that every time I feel the right way, quote-unquote right way to do things, I just close myself off to a whole host of more exciting or original wrong ways to do something. So my question was, having worked with someone who does have a really high level of kind of theoretical knowledge of music, did that change your view to any extent on on that? No, not, not at all. Not at all. I mean, like, first of all, if you, the first thing that occurs to me, that is if I work with somebody who does have that, level of expertise theoretical knowledge and just absolute mastery of a craft but I, I, i've got nothing to offer um to match that do you know what i mean I, i'm not adept in any single thing um that that brings any value of me the only thing i've got value is an alternative perspective or a, a unique or creative approach to something instead because i can't match them on the technical side of things so I have to come with ideas instead. Do you, I mean, you must have learned a fair bit, though, from working with her. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, obviously, you have to keep on learning. I'm not saying everybody has to be an absolute um, sort of, you know, neophyte on every single thing they do. But the the the, 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 the for me, and it's only a personal thing, um, I think there's a line for my personal sort of methods or whatever else, that as soon as I become too adept or, or, or a method becomes too rude, I find it too hard to move away from it. It just becomes habit, if you get what I mean, and it ju- and it just puts me in a single channel. It's sort of like I don't know. I guess it's like the, the two most important phenomenon in music. I guess for me were like uh, jazz and punk. Yep. But I think jazz and punk, to a certain degree, are just that's two different expressions of modernism, really. So it all kind of harks back to sort of the twenties. And uh, all it is is just sort of like we know how to do things. Like every like, there's nothing that hasn't been done at this stage in human history. So the only thing that we can look to do is like, how do we do it differently? How what's what's the way to break that? What's the way to come from a different angle? What's the way to reimagine something? And I find it harder to reimagine things or do things differently or or you know approach things that way when I become too schooled in doing them because I forget the ways not to do them almost. I know that sounds strange, but it's really true. Like I forget how not to do them and they, they become habit instead. And it leads me down like a cul-de-sac. I, I, I find me, found myself doing it with house music for ages. I'd, I'd like make 10 things and I listen to them. like, they all sound the same. Like they sound like the same thing wearing a different hat and pair of shoes, basically. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the things that really excite me are like, I've never heard this before. Yeah. I mean, the comparison of jazz and punk is a really interesting one, actually, because, like, obviously, jazz is extremely theoretical and was based upon people, musicians learning rules and then breaking them, basically, learning to break them. And punk is almost the, like, it's the same thing in terms of philosophy in the sort of rule breaking thing, but it's almost like we're not going to learn the rules in the first place, you know? <laughs> Or at least that's the kind of caricature of it, you know. I think maybe maybe Steve Jones did actually know how to play the guitar, right? And you know, because kind of playing up his ignorance a little bit uh, more than was was truthful. But but yeah, you know what I mean, right? But yeah, but it's punk versus post punk, isn't it? I guess like it's the post punk thing that you kind of come through. Like so, like things like the fall, 
Well, like, you know, if, if uh, Marky e. Smith used to tell like people, like, if you're playing more than one note, you're playing one too many. You can either approach it as sort of a theoretical or mathematical science that has a strict structure to it, um, or you can approach it to a form of expression instead. And it, it lies somewhere in the middle of those two things. Do you know what I mean? Like, as, as does language, I guess. But, like, on a sliding scale, you probably fall to one point or the other. And for me, the bit that appeals to me is the one that's further away from the science and closer towards the raw expression. Um, so from, from a personal point of view, I, I need to keep myself in that space because ultimately the one thing the music I make has to do above all else, the one single thing, and hopefully a lot, most people feel the same about it, it has to satisfy me. Like I have to make something to feel like I've acquitted myself or I've expunged something that I like, wanted to get out of it or that, that, you know, that I've screamed something into the void or that, you know, that I've, I've managed to make a bold statement. Whatever it is, it has to be something that I feel like I've sort of managed that. And, you know, I'm not very mathematical, I'm certainly not very scientific, so the thought of going like, I have finally made the perfect formula for a track. I mean, if I did that, it would be a tech house record. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, because that's what's going to make the most people dance, isn't it? I I thought about this a lot. and I think that's why tech house is so popular. Well, of course it is. So, like... Like, you get an A&R saying, oh, you need... I, I'm really bad when people send me A&R because oftentimes they're right. You know, actually, if you change this, it'll be a bit better. And it's like, yes, it would. But that change, even though it makes it better and more appealing, would make it less me. So where do you stop? Like, if you just keep on chiseling bits off, the bits that fall to the ground of the art, and at the end of it, once you get something that pleases everybody, it's literally like, it's a... I don't know, it's a tech house record that has a Michael Jackson break in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, yeah. Th- th- like once you hone everything off, you've you're left with pure formula, um, which is why that pure formula is so popular. But it's not what I want to make. It doesn't achieve what I want to do. So sure, I mean that the holy grail of music, I suppose, is something which does have that mass appeal, but also is artistically kind of there as well. You know, and there's so few yeah. people which ever achieve that. You know, it's almost like... But I, I, I actually don't think they achieve that musically. I think what ends up happening with that is they, they get hit by a quirk of um, of society being at the right place to accept the message rather than enjoying it. So, like, for instance, like a, a band that was phenomenal successful, I guess either Portishead you could talk about or Massive Attack. If they'd came out at any other point in human history there would have been something that the likes of you and I would say, oh, have you ever heard this band? Um, not many people know them, but I've got the whole... Do you know what I mean? Like, there would be the cool band that nobody had ever heard of, but instead they became massively huge. And it wasn't... It's not something that's inherent in the music. It's the kind of cometh the man, cometh the hour thing, where it's like they were just exactly right at that moment of time to release something so amazingly cool. I mean, I think the same is true for the Sex Pistols, right? Or many other... acts. Yeah. yeah, there's loads of things like that. So like, if it's artistically motivated, you've got to capture... Um, the imagination of of the people in the zeitgeist at, the, at, at that very time. Um, whereas if it's just mass appeal, you just got to capture their asses really and make them dance a bit in a way that, like, in the way that the most huge amount of people can all agree that it's all right. This is the thing, a big thing I realised when I went through, so like in 2019, just before the pandemic, so the timing was great. Sometimes feel that the pandemic just happened for me to have a bit of time off. Um, but um, I was ready to quit in 2019. I just was like really hit the stage of like, what am I doing this for? And like falling down a channel, but not wanting to stop again, kind of bigger and bigger, but like choosing things that were more and more 
away from what I was into it for because that felt like the trajectory that I had to take to keep on improving. You know, it was self-expression for the sake of it. Like that I was just making music to sort of further something. Uh, and I've got to say, it's a lot more rewarding now that I've returned to it after this time refreshed and all the music I'm making is is sort of weird and, and sort of unusual and very much of me and very much uh, unique to me. But like, yeah, I think you, you find yourself trying to, to please a crowd. And I've remembered exactly what it was I was going to say. The, the realisation I had, and it's the same with all of these tech house records that are absolutely huge. I'm not tech house. I mean, I'm, I'm dunking on them a little bit. EDM, whatever, pop sort of leaning type stuff that, that moves sort of millions of people you feel like that's the route that you want to take but you've got two options you can either go on this thing where like say a hundred thousand people will like what you do and that's how you become really popular but alternatively you can just have a thousand people who absolutely love what you do you can't have a hundred thousand people who love it that deeply i don't think if you're doing it because it can't it, it has to be liked and so universal that the capability of absolutely falling in love with it in the way that like you and I know that it's possible to do with certain pieces of music. I just don't think it's possible in something that moves that many people. Maybe I'm wrong on that. And I'm sure people feel like they love it very deeply. But I think like for that true sort of like feeling of connection of having written something musical that's sort of, that really, really gets to the core of you. I think it's important that has to be for less people. Well, let me, okay. A question I often ask myself is what music from this era will be performed say two three hundred years from now so for example you know you're talking about like the great classical composers or even the more recent you know italian operas from like the late 19th early 20th century which is you know rightly seen as being seminal works of art like is there music now because sometimes with with those composers <laughs> there is but you're not going to like what it is <laughs> well that's the thing because sometimes is. sometimes those composers didn't come to prominence until after they were dead right so, so it doesn't always happen at the time it, it might well be music which no one's ever heard now which is the music which stands the test of time uh, no i can tell you what it's going to be um if you've got a list it's going to be um, tell me. Film, film soundtracks like the star wars soundtrack um, it's going to be Christmas songs like um, Slade and Wizard, and it's going to be advert theme music. <laughs> and probably, if you give it 10 years, it'll probably be loads of, loads of, loads of sped-up stuff off TikToks as well, um, but only like in 10 or 15-second clips. I mean, in 100 or 200 years, people won't be listening to anything more than but two the, seconds at a time, m- I reckon. Maybe. I, I, totally, I totally see why you say that. But like, there's, there's two sides to historical music which gets played now, right? So there's the kind of quote-unquote highbrow stuff which gets played in concert halls, like so, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, whatever. But then there's also stuff like, you know, historical folk music. And then, you know, more recently, but still going back, you know, 100 years now, like kind of early like, blues and kind of jazz stuff. And you know, the, the way that is performed now and the way it's influential on music, musicians now is you know, there are different ways of doing it, right? So absolutely stuff like the Star Wars theme. I mean, 100% that will be played in, in 200 years' time. You can definitely see that. But there might be, theoretically, stuff which gains in popularity, just considering the volume of music which is released now. You know, there's so much stuff. There's so many little micro scenes. There's so many little, you know, subgenres. I think that I think that's you're saying the exact reason why it possibly won't happen. So the, the things that you mentioned, sort of, you know, the, the highbrow stuff, 
the channel for that was very narrow. That there was a patron, and sort of you know, if you compare how many people were writing operas and operettas um, at that period, quite low. So it was a narrow field. Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, compared to now, yeah. Com- yeah well, sure. compared to like, yeah, exactly. Compared to now, I mean, now compared to twenty years ago, is like it's it's already been sort of. Uh, um, diffused so massively because of sort of digital distribution and so, but loads of reasons. But all, all reasons I think are great for for the, in, in certain ways as well. I'm not totally here to say that it's all terrible, but um, and it's the same with folk music that like you know the, the folk music that survived is the stuff that sort of was current you know originally carried on. Same with the blues and sort of an oral tradition, I guess, for a long time, and then was the first stuff to be put down and be recorded because it was the most popular one around. Jesus, around the campfire or, you know, on the porch or wherever, wherever it was getting played, um, uh, whether it be folk or blues. And, um, and then a lot of it was the first stuff that managed to be committed to a recording, which, again, was a very narrow field. Like the amount of blues records compared to the amount of blues songs, I imagine, were at the time. Um, you know, I'm sure we've lost more than we've retained. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So I think now the field is so broad that everything by its own definition, I mean, even in the 10 years I've been doing the manpower stuff or the 14 years I've been releasing music, like what I make feels, this is why I have to do the bedwetter stuff and why I have to think about my own personal satisfaction of it because what I make does feel like insignificant compared to how it felt even 10 years ago and not because it's any better or worse or people are any less or more interested than me. It's just that music has been reduced insignificance in general. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily as horrible as it sounds. It's just there's, there's more people doing it. I, I, I mean, when, when did you have your first record out, Paul? My first record came out in 2003. So Wow, right. So 20 years. So you really feel this. So you really feel this, that like the thought of a record coming out and having something committed to vinyl and just having a music release was absolutely seminal. Do you know what I mean? It was like, my God, we've made it. This in itself, the fact that it exists, who can believe it? Do you know what I mean? It was such a significant moment and such a thing that you'd achieved that so many around you hadn't, yeah? Whereas now I think any kid with a sort of cracked copy of Ableton who starts making music within sort of, you know, the first time they set that up, it's not their ambition, it's their expectation that they're going to have a release. Like they the approach it from the point of view that that is something that is absolutely assured and guaranteed that they are going to release. It's just a case of where and, and how and worst case scenario. Well, not necessarily worst case scenario, but one of the, the most straightforward options would be sort of self-releasing on something like Bandcamp. Um, although, I mean, even you could self-release on Beatport if you wanted to, whichever way you wanted to do, whichever DSP or get it up on the Spotify, etc. So now it's, it's shifted from an achievement in and amongst itself and it's sort of an expectation and a baseline, a baseline sort of, um, accepted thing that will happen so that means that there's so much more music out there than there ever was before like so much more um, so it's diffused it and it's it's broken up the channel that's good in a way because it's it, 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 I mean it's the expression of democratisation of music it, you know the, the, the fact is that you know the, the classical music that we're talking about before that was sort of kept alive by gatekeeping and by people saying you are the people who can make it you are the people who are going to be able to perform it and you know everybody else turning away bugger off and it was a, it was a systemic thing that meant that only that amount of music that that channel was so narrow and I guess even when you start talking about early blues recordings or less so with folk music but also to a degree the stuff that really endured or still remembered was still sort of subject to gatekeeping from the point of view of it was the stuff that was recorded it was the stuff that was deemed recorded uh, you know 
recordable by the people who controlled the access uh, and had the money to afford for these things to be recorded or released and going out. Whereas now those things aren't um, impediments to it anymore. So that's that's good in some ways. It's bad in other ways. It's just, I don't think it's either. It's neither better nor worse. It's just different. Do you know what I mean? It's great. But- yeah, I mean, it, it poses problems, but also has benefits. I think it's fair to say. And actually, um, this is another question that I wanted to ask you relating to a quote that, you know, another quote that I picked out, which was to do with technology and the way you work. And the quote was, technology does all the heavy lifting. It offers me a shortcut to creating something that would have otherwise been out of my reach without years of very specific devotion to one form of music writing. And like sort of in isolation, that seems like a really, really positive thing, right? Because it enables people to express themselves in a way which otherwise would be impossible. But then in aggregate, as you've just been describing, it kind of leads to this avalanche of stuff, right? <laughs> which, which you know, people who want to appreciate music and, and want to find good music have to kind of wade through. And that's the kind of issue that we have now, right? It's just a pure volume of stuff which is there yeah i mean i think many issues not the most important ones but issues like this um very much depend on just where you're standing um viewing the object from and what your perspective is from my perspective um and i'm assuming you have a similar one both as somebody who's collected and devoted their life to music and sort of you know the consumption of it and as somebody who's older um, and also as somebody, I mean, older sounds terrible. I'm 43. I'm not, I'm not like older. <laughs> of a certain age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> older than, than like the, the mainstream young consumer of this type of thing, I guess, at the moment, or the target audience at the moment. And also somebody who makes the living out of it, it could be easily seen as, as bad things from somebody standing where I'm standing because, you know, it, it makes it harder to break through. It means that I feel that, that, that potentially for times there's a there's a loss of quality control. Um, and it also, I think, as, as you're pointing out, I think it possibly affects the timeless nature of a lot of it as well because, like, how do you find these things that are going to endure if it's just... Well, it's been, I mean, especially with DSPs and stuff, that the expectation of getting music for free is just, is, is there as well, that, you know, that, what, you have to pay for music? Who the hell would pay for music? Like, we've got Spotify, um, got YouTube, do you, do you know what I mean? I can find it for free somewhere, so why would I pay for it? So that sort of, like, changes the whole economics of it, et cetera. But that's because of where I'm standing. But, I, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and um, her tastes are 12. I mean, obviously, I've contributed to it, because, you know, a dad's a... A music ball, um, but um, but 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 in general, like her tastes are so wonderful and broad ranging, and she she educates me in a lot of music and keeps me up to date and sort of puts me into stuff. So her relationship with music is phenomenal and fantastic, and it's all as a result of this. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that feels fantastic. But then you know you go from another perspective, which is that I feel that in some ways it's removed the tribalism. And it's meant that this kind of outsider tribe that I always felt like a kinship with or a member uh, membership of is slowly being eradicated. This idea of like you know being a part of a subculture and uh, which was really exciting to me and was what drew me to it more than anything. I think like that's been sort of removed because it's sort of accessible by everybody. But then you flip that coin again and you're like, well, that's great because it just means that in general people aren't being othered. So that's kind of wonderful, even if it's... So it, it's just horse trading, really. And like, like my grandparents... Um, 
like I try and think, well, what would it look like from their perspective, and how do things look from there? Because like the last thing you want to be be doing is sort of becoming part of that generation who are just standing there going, well, it's not as good as it used to be. Because I reckon that's something that, that that's that's something that's been said for like a thousand years. I think for me, it's one of the biggest tricks is like just putting myself in a place where I'm not looking at things where it's like. It's not as good as it used to be. It's not what it used to be, but I'll tell you what's not good as it used to be, uh, being me, because I used to be 22 and have a full head of hair and be able to eat whatever I wanted. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that, 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 those days are gone. So, like, you know, that's the lens that I'm looking at things through. It's like all the parties aren't like what they used to be. Well, yeah, but to be fair, I'm not willing to live on 30 quid a week and not go home for six days anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, it's sort of like you know, we've got, always got to consider our own perspective. And, yeah, things are changing and the music industry is changing. But, I mean, the music industry in and of itself is what, like, maybe nearly 100 years old? I mean, if you think about that as sort of, like, what that represents in the, the full sort of spread of human history, it's a blink of the eye, isn't it? So we can't really be like, oh, it's going to change, it's going to be something different. It does, make, it does remind me, though, of, uh, like, the, the things, just as a complete side note, are all the things that... Um, the people think are going to be the thing that changes it that don't work or don't work the first time round. Can you remember when Richie Horton was talking about that kind of handheld DJ system about 15 or 16 years ago that he was trying to get everybody to break? Can you remember that or not? I don't remember that specific one. I mean, Richie, he has... Um... Uh, well, he'll embrace a new idea, won't he? He's not scared to uh, jump in with two feet. Well, I mean, he's, he downloads all of my music he gets sent. I'll give him that. Downloaded for our Horton on every single thing I ever get. Um, but no, I can't remember what it was called now. If anybody can remember who listens to this, please send me a direct message. I, I might even have to Google it. But it was like, it was sort of like pre-iPhone. And he was saying, like, you know, everybody's going to have their music digitally on this one hat. It was like a Game Boy, basically, and this is going to replace DJing. And then his other thing that he was pushing was that we were going to have micro speakers, like, instead of, like, like arrays and setups, we were going to have, like, 2,000 micro speakers set out throughout the whole club and all this. And, like, I can remember the discourse, obviously pre-Twitter discourse, everybody going, have you heard? It's all going to change and it's all going to be over and everybody panicking about it. And it's like, I mean, it is, but just never in the way that you predict Everything does change. Nothing stays the same. And like, I don't know, the best idea is just to enjoy it really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's been all kinds of changes and in the last 20 years have been, you know, just bewildering in many ways, right? In terms of the way that people listen to music and their relationship with it. And in the context of dance music, also the way everything works from DJing to you know, all, all the other different facets of it. I mean, Rich, Rich is a, he's an interesting character, isn't he? Because, I mean, we've talked about him before on the show with regards to him being an early adopter of Final Scratch and that turning into Serato and all the heat that yeah, he yeah. caught for, like, taking the piss out of vinyl DJs on, on Facebook and stuff. Yeah, and no yeah. doubt a lot of that stuff was sort of intentional on his part, you know, to kind of stir the pot and get people talking, which is, you know, I mean, personally, well, I I don't know, I have mixed feelings about technology in music and particularly technology in DJing. I think you can quite easily make the case that it's far too easy to DJ now and that's done weird things to the market. Yeah, it's ridiculously easy to do it. Um, but I don't know, it's just the thing I have to fight against. What you say is completely correct, 
Well, it is still down to the, the kind of perspective that you come from. I mean, this this is something I teach my daughter um, a lot. So I, I kind of explained that, like, that, that, you know, nothing nothing original happens now, nothing new happens now, and everybody is the same, give or take. Obviously, this is a broad statement and not entirely true, but in general terms, everybody has the same access to creating things um, and putting something out there and performing as a DJ, whichever way it wants to be. Do you know what I mean? Everybody can kind of hit that baseline level. It's not... Like, you know, 20 years ago, you remember, like, one of the only reasons I was getting gigs was because I could be bothered to go out and buy records. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't it wasn't because they were good records. It was because I had them and other people didn't. That was all. Do you know what I mean? Whereas now, sort of, you know, everybody has a palette, give or take, to sort of express themselves. So this is where I keep on explaining to my daughter that she was like, what she needs to be wary of is that now what drives things, if people aren't doing anything different or anything sort of more uh, more or less sort of objectively impressive than the person next to them, the only option that they have or the only thing that differentiates them is who they are. And I was like, so what you're going to find is that people become famous because, and this has always been the case, people become famous because they're the most pretty, but it's also because they're the tallest or the shortest or the thinnest or the fattest or they have um, a physical characteristic that marks them out or they do, or they, they behave or they dance in a way that, do you know what I mean? It, it's sort of like, and it's like, it becomes the identity of the person that you're going into rather than the output of the person because that's been leveled off. So it's like, so I just try and tell it to be wary of like, like figure out what it is you like about something. And is it the music or is it, is it the thing attached to the music? And I think, the you know the ease of DJing or the leveling off or leveling up or whichever way you want to phrase it of sort of everybody being able to sort of hit an assumed level very early on has moved things in a way like I could get away with being a an unconventionally handsome like you know like just a normal um, white bloke DJing because people were interested in the music up for a long time and I was one of the only people kind of advocating a certain type of thing or a certain way of acting now. As things have come on, like there's a million people like me. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's so many people out there. So what's what's so interesting about me to somebody new? Whereas, and this is why you know a lot of people get angry about. Well, you know, um, they're only big because they're a girl or because they're good looking. It's like, well, that's nonsense. People are only big because of something about their personality. In a lot of cases, this did, but it's nothing to do with it just being, you know. As something as 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 base as them being a woman or be or uh, you know um, being a certain ethnicity or anything like that. It's literally we've now been hit in the stage where that's all anybody will drive. Is it's sort of like the identity of that person or or the characteristic of that person is the selling point now. It's like oh, just assume the music's fine. Now look at this person. Either they dance or they. Do you know what I mean? And it, it almost reduces it. And I'm not calling people freaks. That's not what I mean by this. I just have to say that out. But it does redu- reduce it to the same kind of things that drive a freak show, if you get what I mean, which is come and look at this person, not come and listen to their music. Again, I don't know if that's a bad or a good thing. I don't. It's just a thing. I think none of these things are bad or good things. They're just like, this is what we're dealing with now. This is the reality of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is close to discussion that I had with DVS one on the last show, the last episode, and again we're you know when you talk about this stuff as a someone who's been doing it for a long time, it's very easy to just to be sound like you're you know <laughs> being the kind of grumpy old man, right? And yeah, you, old you have to kind of like 
police yourself as much as possible with regards to your own attitudes as to like the developments and it's very easy just to assume that new stuff is bad right and and new things which take the scene in a certain way which which are different to your experience of it are inherently bad i think where I think it's legitimate to say that there are problems when you're taking attention away from music. I sort of feel quite confident in saying that is negative with the caveat that, you know, the, the, the aforementioned. So how yeah. Do you, yeah, but not, it's, that? it's not that it's bad. It's just bad for music and music is something that you and I care about. It is bad for music or, or music in the, the system or the structure that we know and love it. It's bad for it. There's no two ways about it. There's something that we love, that we care about, we want to enshrine, and this is something that is threatening it or diluting it or changing it. That That's true. But whether that should be important to everybody else and whether the way that you and I consume or my generation, like our generation, or the people like us, consume music should matter to the next generation is a completely different conversation. And one that you and I don't possess the perspective to be able to judge, I guess. I, so the way I find it... It's a I, challenge, I hope, definitely. It's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hope, I, I hope shit that I care about lives on and sort of, you know, I hope attitudes and sort of things do that and I do things... So like I say, a lot of the sort of like uh, social work that I've been doing, that sounds weird, it makes me sound like a social work, the work with social outputs that I've been doing and things like that, a lot of it has been to sort of enshrine a cultural element or a cultural approach to the thing that we do Um because I care about that and hopefully, and what I find is that young people do as well um, and it enhances their experience and I care about it, not because of anything other than it does, it enhances the experience for everybody and it, expand, it enhances the good that it does and it's nice to do things that do good, do you know? But my expectation of that surviving is different. My, my willingness to try and help it is one thing, um, and but I think that's the best you can hope for is just do what you can. And I do think one thing I have learned, and like it's hard, it's very hard, but is to uh, not approach things from a negative point of view. It's very easy, especially doing what we do. Um, you know, you, you take things massively personally, whether they be global events or sort of responses to what you do, and you, you take changes that they become hard. And it's very easy to find yourself being bitter about something um, and being bitter about other people's successes who perhaps, I'm talking about me, not you, by the way, but who perhaps you feel aren't as. Um, I don't know, it doesn't run as deep with them or they haven't worked for it and all that. You just have to hit it and go like, well, what good does that do for anybody? And like, the fact is, as soon as you start going down that negative path, people move away from you anyway. People don't want anything to do with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, you just, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As soon as you start getting bitter about things, the things that make you bitter, um, you become a bigger victim of because people are like, well, fuck that miserable hustle, you know what I mean? Like, like just like, like, just stay away from them. So it's it's a good lesson just to approach everything with a level of positivity and sort of open-ended sort of um, uh, optimism, I guess. And like even the bits that like, all right, it's not going to go that way, but, you know, it doesn't mean to say it's a bad thing. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. As long as you get to feel that you've done everything you can um, to try and look after the things that you care about. Uh, the, the, the cultural thing, for instance, like... <laughs> It's a weird one because I see a lot of young people talking about this is a culture and this is that and and making it their entire identity. And that's kind of the opposite of what I'm on about. All like, you know, when I first started going into clubs, I got involved in the culture, but I didn't go into it and be like, this is the culture that I care about. I just it was just how we participated. So you'd see the same people in the same clubs every week. 
they become your friends close to being your family and you'd look out for each other and you'd form a community and it wasn't like the word community was the furthest thing from my mind until I had a middle-aged person and sort of considered it do you know what I mean the, the word culture was the furthest thing from my mind I wasn't actively trying to participate in a culture it's just behaviors that we exhibited created one and that's all I'm trying to say is to, to people is like like you can become a customer at a, at a mega venue or you can become a participant in something that has cultural value. Um, you don't have to go in there saying like, here I am to save culture or culture is important. But if you make one decision, that's going to be the outcome. What you're going to do is you're going to make you know, a, millionaire, a, a million pound organization even wealthier and some super rich DJs, very rich, and that's about it. And the other one is you're going to make loads more friends and create something that's more sustainable and that lasts. Do you know what I mean? That, that's just literally the two differences. It, it's not anything bigger than that. So I think with all of it, that's that's just kind of what I'm trying to do when I when I deal with people is just say, like, you know, like it's more fun this way for me and maybe you'll find it more fun. But if you do the other one, eventually the one I like will disappear. Hopefully it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, the history of dance music is largely characterized i would say by the conflict between those two things you've just described like very quickly it became a big business like within a couple of years, years? of the summer yeah, love definitely. yeah there was yeah, this yeah. huge thing which you know grew up around it and then certainly by the early 90s there were you know big corporate forces at play around this thing which was a genuinely you know world changing movement right and you know i've had people on the show like a guy called gerald you know who've described just how revolutionary it was in terms of breaking down barriers in in different um, like social communities and all those kind of legends of acid house and stuff which i mean it's easy to be cynical about now but which absolutely were things you know they did exist like this stuff happened but like i said this has been this conflict from very early on and i think like yeah there is a choice to be made i mean it doesn't have to be you know you don't have to be completely binary about it like you can still go to a big event and enjoy it and that's sometimes exa- those things that's are exactly fun. my point yeah, yeah. like, uh, but, like I, I think a lot of people got this impression that i was saying like you know commerce bad sort of cultural sort of happenings good that's it it's not but I, I did a Venn diagram because I was bored and I've never done a Venn diagram in my <laughs> life not even in school so I did a Venn diagram and it helped us realise that on one end of the scale you've got fully culturally conceived stuff um, which uh, has like a high sort of social value and nobody makes any money out of it whatsoever yeah and then on the other end of things you've got things that are sort of you know um, purely commercially uh, conceived and um, a, a short amount of people make an absolute fortune out of it, yeah? Uh, but it has no thought of culture at all. And then there's this scene in the middle that kind of links the two, which is, I guess, where I've made my living in for most of the time, although I've probably on occasions taken money from a completely horrible cynical one for certain. And on the other side of things, I've definitely done things that have lost me money over the years, uh, but have been, re- have been really worthwhile. But yeah, it's that kind of sweet spot of like saying that like we are recognizing community and culture, and not in a kind of touchy feely like ram it down your throats type of way. Just like you know, this is about people first and foremost. That's all. Do you know what I mean? It's about people and experience and about music and things that we love. But we're also doing it in a way that's sustainable and makes money. And that's kind of the sweet spot you have to hit. 
because like you know like underground sort of free party movement is fantastic but like unsustainable and um this sort of hyper capitalist sort of super festival multiple stages playing to ten thousand people um at 200 pounds a ticket type of thing it's first of all it's ugly and not fun but also like you know if if we just do that it'll stop the things that we care about happening so it's trying to find a sustainable middle ground for both of them i mean jesus like you know i just mentioned before that i've come back to djing full-time because i I make more money doing it like you know i'm extracting a, a, a good amount of money out of my labors or my creations like to be able to keep on doing it so it's not like i'm globally flying around like some kind of like you know, musical evangelical Robin Hood character. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's like, it's like you know, like, it's, it's like yeah, I get paid, and um, it's just like you know, it's just what message do you put there? And it's like, what can you do to keep things going along? And again, it, it comes back to that idea of keeping the door open so other people can do it. You haven't just walked in and like these big mega festivals. They come in and they eat everything. They like play the locusts for for opportunity. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, they monopolize it and they eat it all up. And like, I mean, that's just the nature of capitalism. You can't, it's like, don't hate the player, hate the game type of thing. And we're all participants in it. So it's just, what can you do? I guess, you know, in the same way that people offset their carbon footprint, you've just got to look at ways to sort of offset the effects of capitalism so that other people um, can have an equitable chance in the things that you care about that are creatively conceived, have space to continue and exist and grow. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, so two more things I want to ask you about. First of all, you you mentioned that you grew up in Newcastle and you mentioned Shindig. So tell me about the early raves that you went to that kind of formed your viewpoint that you've just been articulating about the way this stuff should work. So my 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 connection with dance music is a weird one, actually. So as touched on, I was brought up by my grandparents, but you know, I had a good relationship with my mother, who's only 20 years older than me, just. Um, and my dad, who's 30 years older than me. And so between all of them, I had that kind of... I had the, the equivalent of being a third culture kid almost and that like sort of I just managed to extract and just like things that all of them like rather than just being into what a parent was in until a certain age and thankfully my mum she was like 28 in the first summer of love so like the whole acid house thing that's yeah, great whole, I, wish, I wish I was 28 <laughs> <laughs> exactly so like the, the whole acid house thing and all of this, all of our misadventure and everything that kind of went with it I was sort of like you know as healthily privy to it as possibly could be, but mainly like the tapes in the car and everything. So it was just completely normalised. A boyfriend, um, when I was like seven or eight, he um, put on the old sort of Sanyo, you know, stacked hi-fi with a glass front door. He put a tape on and it was um, uh, Pacific, uh, well, it was um, 808 State, but it was Pacific 707. Uh, and he literally, I swear to God, this sounds like something like a scene in a film or like I'm just putting in for bio, later bio, biography purposes. But he literally went, this is house music and it's going to change everything. Like he, I can remember him visibly saying that and being like, what? Just just, just to add a little bit of com- uh, context to that, like uh, two months later, he played his um, digital underground Humpty dance and said, this is hump music and it's going to change everything. So it's not as <laughs> but, but, not, not, not as portentous as you might think, but like, you know, I mean, probably edit that one out. Um, but yeah, um, and yeah, so I, I was kind of exposed to it. So it was just kind of normalised. And then, um, yeah, I was very much into sort of, broad musical taste all the way through. It was very much into sort of, you know, 
pop and rock and roll, particularly in sort of like, you know, old rock bands and sort of Hendrix and stuff like that growing up and just like loads of different things. And like, just, you know, the clubs I used to go to were basically, um, I would go to see if I could pull women. So I'd just go to very mainstreamy type things. And, and it wasn't until, I don't know, probably in my early 20s when I dropped out of all of that completely. Um, and I'm a school governor these days. So I have to be very careful about how explicit I am about, um, I am genuinely a school governor these days. I have to be sort of explicit about, semi non-explicit about certain things, but just participating in certain elements of that culture completely allowed me to deprogram all of this working class bullshit. And I'm not saying being working class is bullshit, but there's like where I'm from, it would be like irresponsible of me not to suggest that there was a lot of bullshit programming that went on it allowed me to completely drop out of that and then at around about the age of 24 I just dropped out of everything and just became I, I was just constantly either in a club or at a party like I was a dropout a complete dropout like um but it was an essential sort of part of my life and then what kind of happened was the clubs I was hanging around with I'd go to Shindig which I love but the, I was more part of a, a party called Nice that used to happen at a club called the Stage Door that became the Cosmic Ballroom um and just started doing parties there on a Saturday and it was just I was just like fell in with a whole bunch of weirdos and outsiders some of them like the music some of them like just the feeling of being a fringe character do you know it wasn't it wasn't just about sort of music heads or anything it was about what the whole thing represented and I don't know I feel like I probably didn't sleep for about five years um and then when I came out the end of it because I was somebody who collected music and was always in the house and everything else uh, it just turned out I had a DJ career because I started playing at bars, first of all, because it was like, well, I was going to be there anyway, but I get paid if I do this <laughs> and the drinks are free. So I started doing it there and then, I don't know, started getting booked uh, to play clubs and then started running my own club parties. And then, I don't know, I just all sort of fell into it organically. But never at one point did I think like, oh, what a wonderful cultural experience I'm having with this community. Do you know what I mean? It was never, it was never in that sort of thingy. It's just when you come outside of it and you're like, feels like there's something missing in some of the places I go. And what is it? And what was it that attracted me? And what is it that wouldn't attract me about this? Or what's missing to attract me about this? And then you just become aware of, well, there were certain behaviours that were just more aligned with that. And those were the things that really, above all else, above the music, um, above the the, the the capability of performing, above all else, those were the things that were sort of sacrosanct to me and those were the things that really pulled me back week in, week out. And it was. It was about the other people and the feeling of being part of something. And 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 I worry that people miss that now. I worry that when, you know, sort of some young kid gets his or her first sort of um, opportunity to, to make some music or to DJ or whatever else, that they automatically be in their head have this trajectory and I speak to loads of them and they ask me the same questions it's like how will I get my music signed how will I start getting gigs how will I get bigger and that's the first thing they ask you well for me it was just like every weekend was like how am I going to fund going and seeing all my friends at the same place that was the only thing that bothered me it wasn't about like like they always talk about it in terms of career and like the career was the, the career was something that happened to me by accident not by design and all of the people who I speak to who I really rate and sort of judge, it was the same with them. Nobody came and approached it like an investment banker or like, you know, like they didn't go to their careers officer at the school and the careers officer said, well, you know, you need to get a GCSE and such and such and such and such if you want to be a bit. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was just a case of like we fell into it because it's a passion of ours. 
and I think people should really be approaching things about like what makes me feel passionate and not what will get me to this sort of end point that I might not even end up enjoying. Who knows? Do you know what I mean? I mean, if what makes you passionate, if somebody turns around and says what makes you passionate, they say loads of fucking money and nothing else. He's like, right, you're on the right path. Brilliant. But like not everybody feels like that, you know? I guess the flip side of that would be that if it seems like a career to people, there is a positive aspect to that, right? Because I mean, presumably they wouldn't be wanting to do it as a career if they didn't like it, right? So you could argue, going back to what we said at the very start about how, you know, you were never or or you were discouraged from thinking about, you know, doing anything sort of artistic. And these kids who are thinking in terms of career and and music obviously don't feel that discouragement, right? Quite the opposite. It's much more of a, well, I can do this. Like, and there is a positivity to that. I completely agree. But it's about career expectation, I guess. So if your career expectation is that I want people to be able to take videos of me that are from behind in a Jesus pose so you can see me and how many people I'm doing it to, that, that, that's, that's one thing. Do you know what I mean? But like, it's like if I want a career doing something that I get to be with the people I love, doing the thing I love all of the time, then I think that's great. But I just think that, that, that that's, I agree with you. It needs to be sustainable. It needs to be seen as being a career, but there's a career and there's a career. And if you're not going to be happy doing your own thing locally, if it's to a full crowd and it's an amazing party, and the only thing that's going to make you happy is if you're putting at the same pedestal as all of these other people, I think you're setting yourself up for, a, you know, and nine times out of ten you're setting yourself up for a horrible sense of dissatisfaction. Um, whereas if you can just be like the thing that makes you, that's where I come back again, intrinsic satisfaction is the other If you're satisfied applying your trade and communicating to people um, as a DJ and you're happy to go through it and it's it's conceived about, you know, connecting with people, et cetera, and going from that point of view and the things that make it fun of the element of the community and all of that, then I think you're going to have a more happy and sustainable sort of route to it. But we're kind of, it's kind of drilled into all of us that the only way of being a success is having what literally 1% of people have. And, you know, and, and, and that, that turns it into quite a toxic environment almost, you know. And it also encourages behaviour of people, I don't know, projecting this nonsense out there that, you know, like, first great gig, like everybody talks in terms of curated and debut and like they all copy what each other says and all that. It's just, just go out, be authentic and do something you love. You do see the same language being used by everybody and it's sort of like, you know, it's just like be authentic and like it's not like a stance, just like you'll enjoy it a lot more. Like it's like having an autobiography or having somebody ghostwrite it and make up all the things because they think it's going to be popular. Yeah, yeah, that's um, reminiscent of something that's in the news at the moment. Um, Anyway. (laughs) I've just seen the bit where he talks about his todger. That was it. I thought it was amazing. (laughs) I just thought the use of that word, particular word, was was just fucking amazing generally. That's that's how I knew it was true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So, last question. You mentioned that you've got a 12 year old daughter. And when I wrote down this question, I didn't realize that I I knew you had a a child, but I didn't realize they were as old as 12. So, the question was, how is having a family affected your musical output? Um, so, Samantha, um, in strictest terms, just because like, I have to be honest, like re- reflect this honestly, so Samantha's my stepdaughter, um, but I mean, I regard her as my daughter. I've known her since she was like three years old. Like, you know, we've been in, like, I, I don't think she can remember a time before me and, you know, I, I, I raised her as a full-time parent with her, with her mother 
Adriana, um, the family thing, I mean, Jesus, that changed everything. Um, not for the negative or anything, but like literally, so, I, you know, I've got like 10 years or so behind me before I became sort of known for the manpower stuff and started touring globally. I'd been working as a resident for years and sort of, you know, I'd released music in different projects and I played a few festivals around the world and done a few international gigs, but nothing as sort of far and flung and as rapid as things happened with manpower very quickly. I mean, that was like a game changer for me, but um, <laughs> I like within the first year and just like on the eve of releasing my first album on Correspondent, I did my first tour in Mexico uh, and the and the United States. So it was like literally kind of day one of like the really exciting stuff happening. And um, and I fell in love with a girl on my first global tour. So it was like, oh, well. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, I, I, it didn't change things for me because it basically became a going concern from kind of day one. And the woman I'd fell in love with had a three-year-old daughter as well. So it wasn't even a case of being like, oh, well, you know, I can have a girl in every port. Like I had to, like it was serious and it was just me and her from the moment I met her. And I had to consider the daughter straight away. So yeah, it changed everything. But I, it kind of also didn't because the whole manpower sort of trajectory for the last 10 years has been defined by that as well. Like that's been the situation. Um, it's been the situation of living in Mexico and sort of touring in Europe. It's been the situation of having to fit in time to make sure that I can be sort of um, present. It's also built in the situation of like changing. I was kind of, even when the manpower stuff started, I was kind of like wild for partying and sort of just staying out for, for great long swathes of time. Again, something that has been highlighted by the, almost certain ADHD diagnosis is it's very consistent with that um, um, so I kind of had to realise and make some decisions it's like well I can't be going back and be absolutely useless so I have to curb sort of certain behaviours and but to be honest it's been perfect because I went through a lifetime of having nobody to please but myself and that was quite hollow and sort of also I had no problems with letting myself down so it was quite easy to uh, to, to, to kind of not follow what I needed to do whereas now I've got to look in the eyes of the two people I care about the most in the world so it sort of it dictates everything I do instead it's great though I absolutely love it it's the best thing that ever happened to me so have you felt I suppose like necessity dictating or even influencing the music that you make at all uh, nah not really. I mean, the the only necessity or imperative that comes from having a family is a financial imperative. Um, so it was what made me stop DJing for a while because it meant I got to stay at home and be with them, especially in the year that they moved to the United, the United Kingdom with me. They've only lived here for like 14, 15 months now. So they moved last October. So I didn't want to be like, hi guys, I am, I'm just off to the Middle East. Do you know what I mean? So like, uh, so, so, so it kind of dictated that, but now the financial imperative and the fact that they're settled in and like, you know, Sam's thriving, like has so many friends, loves school, et cetera. My wife loves, uh, just, you know, making friends every day, has a great job. So that I'm not as needed now. They're kind of, all right, see you later. And rather than like, uh, you know, what do we do? So, so it's, it's, but it's the financial imperative more than anything else. And it, it just, it's true that, I can make more money DJing and performing than I can do anything else at the moment. Um, I, and sort of, I'm ready to come back as well. That was the biggest one. Like, I was really down about it. And then I was writing the symphony, so I couldn't even think about it. And then after this symphony thing, I think it's just been this beautiful sort of bloodletting. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> I've shown I'm a clever fucker now. <laughs> so it's like, no, nobody can deny it. I've got the footage. This is perfect. Let's go out and have some fun again. And I, honestly, I've got like, 
three releases out in the next six weeks. Um, the whole year is jam-packed. Like, I, sometimes you walk away from these things and you wonder if it's going to be there when you go back, and I'm really lucky that it is. And strangely, um, you know, a few things happened. Like, I got nominated for DJ Mag's Underground Hero at the Best of British. There's been a few other things like that. Paul Wolford rang up and asked me if he could play back to back with us in Newcastle. Just had you and uh, McVicker do the same, potentially. There's loads of things like, and the offing like that, which are just really nice co-signs. I've got like mixes coming up on like NDS and rents. Just loads of like things that I'd not been paying attention to were just there waiting for me and all have happened at once. So I can kind of like be excited about it. It's brilliant. It's one of the greatest things. But yeah, I'm doing it for the money. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you, like you see the Happy Mondays start touring again every time they've got a tax bill type of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's that kind of logic. But the two aren't mutually exclusive. Like it's great that I can go back to it. The reason I'm doing it is to provide for the family, but also like at least I'm getting to do it with something I absolutely love. Um, at, at a point when I'm really, really ready to receive everything it brings. So yeah, it's it. it uh, but as far as sort of like making music or anything like that, doesn't change. It hasn't changed a single thing. Hasn't changed the type of music or the way I approach it. Sam was like, I'd show Sam videos of me playing to like ten thousand people at Burning Man, all dressed like Tron. With flame, with flame jetting behind me, and she'd just be like, "Oh, cool!" Like, <laughs> like it's so dismissive. It's really impressive, impossible to impress like a young person about this type of stuff. So I kind of gave up on it. But now, in the last year and a half, Sam's identity is really. She's really discovered music, and she's really sort of um, that's becoming a big part of her identity. And thank God, thank God, she has phenomenal taste as well because. Like, I, you know, I love it to death, but, like, even if she was my own flesh and blood, we'd have an issue if she had shit taste. We would. I just wouldn't be able to, as, as much as I love her, I wouldn't be able to cope with it. So, thankfully, uh, no, she's got absolutely wonderful taste. So, like, and she's now starting to take a slight interest. Um, but instead of, like, I, I mean, all my records are in the house. The turntables are there whenever she wants to use them. But I'm not pushing that on her. What I did do is I gave her all, like, I gave her about... 200 albums for her birthday because she bought herself a record player so she's now got this amazing catalogue of like Bowie and Talking Heads and sort of like canonical stuff if you like um, which I hear her listening to which is just a good basis for anybody to kind of jump off from but now we bought her a bass guitar for Christmas and she's learning the bass instead which is really cool to see happening instead you know people need to pick up on their own musical journey and she might be a participant she might be a fan she might just be a dancer who knows not just a dancer but she might choose to only be a dancer um as in somebody who turns up and dances at clubs not somebody who does a profession or anything like that so like it's all those are important people well that's the point isn't it like all of them are valid and important and you know the, the one thing i think we need more of is people who just want to turn up and dance they're sometimes the thing that I feel has been sort of pulled away from the fold because of being distracted by other things where it's like, just come and enjoy it. But so, yeah, but like as far as creating or anything or making, nah, nothing changed at all. Not not in the slightest. I think at one point, the only thing that changed is I went through a slight dark period, like I mentioned, where I wanted to get bigger and better. And I think I got a little bit of writer's block because it's like, what will be popular? What can I make that's going to, that people are going to like? You, you, you quickly realise that it's impossible to game that. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you can't just look at it and just go like, "Oh, right, there's the formula." It's just so inauthentic and insincere that, like, even if you had two or three hit releases, it's not something that you could you could maintain for any longer period. So once you get that out of your system, you just end up making the same old weird noise that appeals to you instead. I think. Yeah, man, totally. Well, that's a great place to 
to finish. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It's been awesome. No, no I've just been really enjoyed chatting. I'm sorry if I run off at the mouth sometimes on a tangent. It's just a, a habit of mine. Yeah, that was Manpower, aka Jeff Kirkwood. And I really, really enjoyed that conversation. We got quite deep into certain things. There were areas which I was not expecting to get into, as I think I said during the course of that, which were, yeah, really stimulating, I found. I didn't know Jeff at all before that conversation. Chatted to him a little bit online, but never talked to him in person before. And sometimes those are just really surprising conversations in a good way. Obviously, not always in a good way. But this one was definitely surprising in a good way. And yeah, just got a lot out of it. And he is doing some really interesting stuff, I think, musically. Really admire what he's done with that artist in residency thing with the Sage up in Newcastle. And what I said about Newcastle, by the way, is absolutely true. It's a beautiful place. And if you get a chance to visit it, I would highly recommend doing so. It's really, really great. Amazing architecture in the centre of the city. And yeah, just beautiful suspension bridge. I think it's a suspension bridge. One of those kind of big bridges. Industrial Revolution era bridges, which is just unbelievably cool looking, distinctive. All right. Anyway, just a quick note to say Anna Cost is dropping her full EP on Hot Flush this Friday. It's called Sea Life Better. There's been a couple of singles from it already, but the full EP drops this Friday, hotflush.bandcamp.com or wherever you listen to your music from Friday the 20th of January, that is. It's an awesome EP. I think it's our strongest material to date, which is saying something because our previous stuff has been great too. So make sure you check that out. If you're a Musicality team member, you will already have that EP. So if you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash official you get as part of the musicality tier which is the higher tier i think it's ten dollars a month eight quid or whatever you get all the hot flash promos and there will be another promo going out this week on musicality so look out for that and in fact last week there was a previously unreleased track by me on the musicality tier so yeah there's music going up high quality downloads if you're a dj and you want tunes then it's basically worth it in addition to your support of course of the podcast, of your favourite music podcast, possibly. Okay, I think we're done here. Remember to follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes, and join the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. If you've got anything to say to me, any suggestions for the show, you want to suggest a guest, you want to slag me off about something that I asked the guest or whatever, if you've got any comments, positive or negative, constructive in either case, that's the place to do it, hotflushrecordings.com slash discord. And yeah, that's about it. I'll see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.